Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. My name is Lauren Richmond Jr. Today I'm welcoming Brian Zahn to the show. Brian is the founder and lead pastor of Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. Known for his theologically informed preaching and his embrace of the deep and long history of the church, Zahn provides a forum for pastors to engage with leading theologians and is a frequent conference speaker. He is the author of several books, including Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, A Farewell to Mars, and what we'll talk about today, When Everything is on Fire. Welcome to the show, Brian. What else would you like our listeners to know about you? Oh, I, what do they want to know? Um, I'm a big Kansas City Chiefs fan, a little bit brokenhearted. We didn't get back to the Super Bowl, but since I'm talking, yeah. I probably just ought not even bring it up at all. Right, right. <laughs> well, it's above me, Brian, but I'm actually a lifelong Buffalo Bills fan. So that was oh, well. especially painful. Okay, now now I really feel bad. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, my brought coming that of up. age my coming of age in middle school was during the the Super Bowl runs, which was tough. But uh, you know, such is life. I have good a good day. friend in Genoa, Italy. He's pastor uh-huh. of a church there. His name's Lino Gabbiano. He is a total full on Bills Mafia, hardcore Buffalo Bills fan in the United States. Mm-hmm. And I asked him, I said, well, why did you pick the Buffalo Bills? You, could, you, know, you have 32 teams to pick from. You can pick any of them. He said, because they lost four Super Bowls in a row. Hmm. I said, Lino, I can respect that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure our listeners are dying to know about things other than the Buffalo Bills right. and Kansas City Chiefs. So um, talk about your journey of faith, how you came to the faith, and what that looks like today. Yeah, I I kind of um, even though I did grow up in a home that attended church and it was a good home, a good family, good church. Uh, Jesus existed on just on the periphery of my awareness as just some historical figure might, until I was 16 years old, and Jesus came crashing into my life in a most dramatic way. Uh, everybody knew me as Fry. They didn't know me as Brian or anything. I was Fry, hmm. and I was I was at at that stage of my life. I was just about to head down some really terrible, destructive paths, and Jesus saved me. And it was pretty dramatic. And I don't think every conversion should or will be like that. But mine was quite sudden, mm-hmm. and it became you know, it became an item of interest in the high school. And everybody pretty much knew fairly quick that something had happened to Fry. And when it became clear that it wasn't a passing fad, I remember friends and even teachers saying, Fry, I can't believe what's happened to you. And I said, yeah, I know, right? (laughs) I can't hardly believe it either, but it's (laughs) happened. And by the time I was 17, I was leading a ministry 
It wow. was this is during the Jesus movement. Mm -hmm. It was a coffee house by which we mean a music venue for the mm -hmm. Jesus music scene, but also that effectively functioning as something like a church. And so by the time I was 22, we just decided, yeah, this really is a church. Changed the name from Catacombs to Word of Life, and that was 40 years ago. Wow. So I tell people, look, I've been a pastor officially for 40 years, but effectively for 45 years, yeah. meaning I've pastored longer than I've been an adult. <laughs> wow. Which is kind of strange and odd and funny and not <laughs> recommended, but that's... So that's been my life's journey, and or at least you know that's how I began with Jesus. Mm -hmm. And if I if I can give you just a quick thumbnail sketch of what it's been like, yeah, the church was small, stayed small for about seven years, and then it began to grow, and then it became enormous. And uh, those were exciting, heady days. It's kind of fun to go through a phase like that. Uh, but as I entered my 40s, I just had this growing unease, and I was beginning to have something of a crisis of faith, not regarding my faith in Jesus Christ, but my faith regarding Christian style. And that led to a profound rethinking. Today, probably, people would describe as deconstruction. Yeah, I wouldn't. I didn't use that term back then. This well, we're talking, you know, almost twenty years ago. I w we didn't use that term because one, it wasn't in vogue. It wasn't the term used, and plus, I knew enough Jacques Derrida to know where that phrase came from and how it doesn't perfectly apply to a critical rethinking of Christian faith. But I did go through that, and it was difficult, and I was doing it very publicly as a pastor trying to bring people with me, which turned out to be painful, difficult, hard. Uh, the church came through it, but reduced. And so that's, you know, that's that story, which I tell more in full in my book, Water to Wine, sort of does lurk in the background of when everything's on fire. Because if I am addressing this phenomenon that is popularly referred to as deconstruction, I'm not doing one just from some sort of cool, objective distance. I know what at least one version of that experience is, is like, and I've been through it. My Maybe that's good to know in, in setting up our conversation. Yeah, 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 it is. And how would you describe, how would you describe your faith today? I would describe it as uh, renewed. I mean, I need to say this, and I know this is a story by any means, but I never was really suffering any kind of doubt about Jesus as the Christ. Maybe I, mm -hmm. maybe I passed through some of that in the 90s, in, in my 30s, and had to kind of wrestle through, through some things. This later transition that happened, you know, 20 to 15 years ago, uh, was just finally finding a Christian that was worthy of the Christ who captured my heart as a teenager. Yeah. And so, I, you know, I don't know what I'm supposed to say, but I would describe my faith today as, as very alive, very vibrant, very rich, much rooted in the long history of the church and, a, and, and the wide breadth of the church ecumenically. 
So by default, I came into the faith essentially non-denominational Christian, and almost immediately as a pastor, again, as strange and bizarre as that sounds. Uh, and I don't advocate, it's not a position to advocate for, sure. you know, non-denominational, but it's just what happened. But because of that, I've been, I certainly carry a standard, a flag for non-denominationalism. I think it's deeply problematic, in fact. But what I have done is become intentionally very broad, very ecumenical, and I've learned how to seek out the best in all of the, the various expressions of the church, whether it's Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Anglican Communion, Mainline Protestant, Anabaptist, Evangelical, Charismatic Pentecostal. Um, you know, some people seem committed to trying to find the very worst expressions of those they can, <laughs> and they're out there, and, and those make yeah. more news, I suppose, at least in, in some venues. I've tried to do the opposite and find the best theologians, thinkers, leaders, and uh, and partake of the treasures that they are particularly the custodians of. Yeah, I like that. I like that approach. Talk about some spiritual practices that you've developed or might recommend others. Mm. Well, uh, your spiritual life is never going to rise above your capacity to pray well. And this was one of the things that was very central in maybe midlife renaissance of faith, was learning how to pray well. And I, I, I can't really, it, it's something that just happened. I'm not doing a good job communicating this. Through a series of events involving even some dreams, mm -hmm. I learned over the period of a couple of years how to incorporate prayer books into my life of prayer, and it just changed everything. And I, I began to learn how to have a structure of prayer that could lend itself to proper formation because the primary purpose of prayer is not to get God to do what we think God ought to do, but to be properly formed. Yeah. And toward that end, we can't trust ourselves to do all of our own praying. And so uh, by the grace of God, you know, I just, I learned how to pray well. And then people began to ask me first beginning with just our staff and then our local church. And then it spread and spread and spread. And I, I've never, you know, asked to do it, but I've been requested some, like, I think it's 87 times to conduct a prayer school. And these are things that I do now. It takes, you know, I, I currently the way I teach it is in three 90-minute sessions. And so that's at the heart of my spiritual life. That is the key practice, learning how to pray well, the morning liturgy of prayer, um, everything probably good in my life in some way comes from Wellspring. You know, the other practices is I pay a lot of attention to the church calendar. I think there's mm -hmm. wisdom in that, gives a holy rhythm to our lives. So instead of just, you know, marking the time by the Gregorian calendar, I pay attention to the very ancient church calendar and, yeah. and lean into the various rhythms of Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, etc. That's been helpful. Um, as far as having scripture in my life, that's never really not been a, in, uh, a factor. From the very beginning, from when I was first captured by Christ, when I was 16, I've loved the scriptures. And, and to just spend time daily 
you know, in the terrain of of the text of the Bible is just it's just natural for me. I do, and I kind of allude to this in the book. I do read it differently now, mm-hmm. uh, but that but that I just can inhabit and live in the geography of Scripture. It's I look forward to it every actually just to sit with a cup of coffee and and right now I'm in in the in the Old Testament. I'm in the New Testament. I'm in Luke and. It's just a delight. And the another thing I would mention, and I don't know if people think of this as a spiritual practice, but it is. And that is that uh, we journey in faith together. Hmm. Um, one of the maladies of Western Christianity is that it is too individualistic, too privatized. Uh, the evangelical emphasis on personal savior, which grew out of a need for some sort of because of the conquest of Christendom, where mm-hmm. Christianity was the assumed cultural assumption, but we wanted people to actually live into it, and so in the and this becomes the the birth of revivalism, and the and the call in revivalism is for you to have your own personal experience with Christ, and this turns into personal Savior language, fine, but that's too easily distorted into private Savior. Yeah. And there's there's nothing in Scripture or in Christian history that would encourage that approach. Uh, the Desert Father, and these are people that were given to at times to a good deal of solitude, but even they had the saying, one Christian is no Christian. And so that that I have my friends, my church, the people that know me, that I can be open with, the people that I don't have to pretend around in any way, those kind of friendships and relationships are absolutely essential to spiritual health in my life for sure. Well, those are those are four like really good things. I'm curious, um, what's one thing? you might give for prayer people need to do to pray well pray well oh see you're <laughs> if i had four and a half hours i could give a really yeah, I good know. answer i'm asking uh, you a lot here i say you eventually have to discover the prayers hmm. uh eventually see the problem we, we've been in certain within certain streams yeah of western christian thought We've been given the assumption that if every prayer isn't spontaneous and original, yeah. it isn't authentic. <laughs> and but the problem yeah. with that is you are left to your own devices and your own limitations. And the truth of the matter is, angry people tend to pray angry prayers. Fearful people tend to pray fearful prayers. Greedy people tend to pray greedy prayers, and no progress is made. And so we need access to the wise, time-tested, church-vetted prayers that can help form us and help us make progress. So uh, now, having said that, you know, if someone hears and they go, I don't even know how to go about that. Well, <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't have time to go into all how, how you can do that, but there are ways. And so I would say... Um, you need to begin to incorporate the prayers, which, by the way, is is actually we're told that 
at the end of Acts chapter 2, at the beginning of the church, the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. That's what it says, the, definite article, prayers, plural. King Mm -hmm. James translated that as devoted themselves to prayer, and then some other translations followed suit. Most all modern translations, though, do translate it accurately. And notice the difference, Lauren, between if I say devote yourself to prayer, Mm -hmm. which just sounds like a generic exhortation, and people say, okay, I'll try, uh, as opposed to if I say devote yourself to the prayers. Well, reply, and what prayers are we talking about? And then I can say, I'm glad you asked. And you begin to give them the prayers, whether it's the Lord's Prayer, that'd be foundational, or the Psalms, or then the prayers that just have been crafted and curated over the history of the church that we can find in the various prayer books. Yeah, well, that's really good. And I'm sure folks can find out more on your website for connect with one of these uh, prayer classes. Let's jump in, though. I really appreciated your insight so far on prayer, even for myself. But let's jump into talking about your book. So um, you've authored the book, When Everything's on Fire, Faith Forged from the Ashes. And I think one of the things that I mentioned to you before we started recording that I really appreciated, obviously, you hinted at it, talking about, I always struggle saying his name. Is it Derrida? Uh, Derrida. Yeah, Jacques Derrida. the emphasis that's really going strong right now on deconstruction and, you know, there's some, some folks who've made, I think, a fairly good living, <laughs> we might say, uh, promoting deconstruction, which I think we'd all agree that there are benefits to deconstruction. Um, but also one of the things that I really appreciated about the book was the way it seeks to give on-ramps for reconstruction. Uh, but first, let me ask you, you know, you have the title of the book, When Everything's on Fire. I mean, we're, as we're recording this, it's, what, February? COVID seems to be calming down, yet, look, you know, we also have the possibility of war in Europe developing with Russia invading Ukraine. And it really does feel like everything is on fire. Uh, and you, you talk about in the book of Nietzsche's fear of the end of Christianity. And I think there are many people who wonder, like, at least in the West, is Christianity, are we seeing the end of it? Yeah, uh, I engage part of the book quite a bit with Friedrich Nietzsche, this uh, 19th century German philosopher who I would say is the most important critic of Christianity in modern times. And I think that serious Christian thinkers must seriously engage with Nietzsche. Uh, I, I find Nietzsche far more serious than the cobble of new atheists who really, their arguments are kind of more an argument just against Christianity rather than any kind of historic Christian faith. Yeah. Uh, by which I mean they're simply finding the worst versions of Christianity and deplorable, and I just struggle and say, yeah, I agree, but let's have a more serious conversation here. Uh, Frederick Nietzsche, first thing to know about Nietzsche, he was born in, I believe, 1844, I'm guessing, but I think that's pretty close. And, and before I say anything more, I want people to know, I just, I want people to know that I have engaged with Nietzsche seriously. 
I, I'm not saying I'm not talking about you know I read his Wikipedia page. <laughs> <laughs> I've read most of his works. I'm good friends with who would maybe be considered the leading Nietzsche scholar in America, mm-hmm. and uh, so you know I mean I'm I'm well read in this, and so mm-hmm. I, I I didn't I didn't just you know do two days research while writing this book. This is something that's been going on for 20 years with me. I think anyone who reads the first couple chapters can tell. Uh, I was very impressed with your level of scholarship and engagement. Uh, my favorite probably section of the book really was your first couple chapters. I, well, I, and, and I love Nietzsche. Okay, now I'm, obviously we're going to have a parting of ways as far as how we think about God and Christ. Right. But... I, I just have a fondness for him. One of the things you have to keep in mind about Nietzsche is he was a PK. Yes. We all know that yes. is, right? A, a pastor's kid. Yeah. Yeah, he was a Lutheran pastor's kid. And I have raised three PKs. <laughs> <laughs> and what I can tell you about PKs is they have an acute sensitivity to hypocrisy. Yes. And yes. I think that's part of what drives Nietzsche. And Nietzsche was primarily a critic of the moribund Christendom of the late 19th century that he saw in Western Europe. And what he thought was it was time for Western society, and he would see Western society as leading the world, uh, to take the bold leap to move on without God, without Christianity. But he wasn't cavalier about this. Um, maybe I should set this up by giving a quick summary of his parable of the madman. Yeah. In the parable of the madman, a traveler comes into a village on a bright sunny morning, holding aloft a lantern and crying out, Where is God? Where is God? I'm seeking God and I can't find God anywhere. Villagers gather around. They begin to laugh at this odd spectacle of a man carrying a lantern in broad daylight. I can't find God. Where is God? As they gather around him and laugh, uh, the madman leaps in their midst and says, I'll tell you where God is. God is dead, and we have killed him. And as they continue to laugh, Uh, The madman says, oh, I see, I've come too soon. Hmm. This day is still a ways off, but it will come. And then he smashes the lantern and goes into the churches and sings a requiem for God. What he's saying here is Nietzsche is, I think he was very prescient, prescient. He was very observant. And he looks around the landscape of Western Europe in the late 19th century, and he says, you know what? People really don't believe in God. They've replaced God with other things. They've replaced God with science and technology and these sorts of things, but they're not quite aware of it yet. Yeah. Uh, and there will come a day when God will be dead. In the, They'll be aware of the death of God in the sense that God is no longer the center organizing principle of society for Western culture. In that analysis. I think he was, in fact, very accurate, and we're living through that. He was ahead of his time. It didn't make sense, you know, in 18... Well, he worked up until 1890. Um, But by the time you get to the 19... What is it? 66, Time Magazine has its famous cover, Is God Dead? Right, right. But Nietzsche's different. 
Nietzsche was not cavalier about this. He mm. did think it was time to move on, but he knew it was risky. He says, well, we've sponged away the horizon. How can we tell if we're up or down or sideways? He says, we've unchained the earth from its sun. We're in danger of just floating through a vast, dark, cold nothingness. He hoped for the ubermensch, the overman, the superman. That is, that humankind, men, and it would be men because he, he wasn't egalitarian <laughs> or anything like that. He, he, he believed it was time for men to arise as gallant Greek gods and stride the world as a colossus through their great will to power. And they would be unshackled from what he would consider the chains of Christian slave morality. Nietzsche argued that the appeal to love as the, as the supreme ethic, as is presented in Christian faith, was in fact a very clever way for the weak to manipulate the strong. And what happens is it mm -hmm. just keeps uh, humanity weak and unwilling to achieve greatness. And this is what he unpacks in his works like, you know, uh, Antichrist, Beyond Good and Evil, Genesis of Morals, uh, and, and, and books like this. Well, uh, that was his hope. His fear, though, was what he calls the last man or the last men. And yeah. these, the last man is an incurious, utilitarian couch potato. That that really doesn't aspire to anything great other than a bit of maybe sedated happiness. And he, he describes the last men in various ways, but one of my favorite lines is he says, uh, the last man uh, sits and says, we have invented happiness <laughs> stupidly. <laughs> I, I think of just I think of the modern man mesmerized by whatever screen it is, whether it's a large flat screen TV or their little screen in their hand, yeah. and and never grappling with the great issues. Never okay. That this was his fear. That this was he calls it the last man because he sees it as the failed stage of development for humankind. Mm -hmm. Well, let's be honest now. Let's be honest. Uh, there has been one group of people that took Nietzsche serious to the degree that they said, let's go for it. Let's live according to this ethic. God is dead, remains dead. We've killed God. We've moved on. Now we will become gods ourselves, and we will move beyond Christian slave morality. And who were they? Well, it was the, it was the Nazis who, yeah. who took the Nietzschean text as their canonical texts. So... You know, I in the book I fantasize briefly about having a lunch with Nietzsche at a cozy Basel cafe, but I say, look, I'm going to have to get him caught up on what happened in the 20th century. And it's going to be painful. I think a lot of it wouldn't surprise him, but he probably would be very disheartened to know that his Ubermensch turned out to be a monster. Yeah. To which I would like to also say, I would say it nicely as I could, but I would say, come on, Nietzsche. I mean. Did, how did you think this was going to end? With your dark fascination with violent will to power, did you think it was going to end other than in death camps on a continent and ruins? Yeah. So, uh, but, I, but I juxtaposition Nietzsche with a rough contemporary, although they never, I mean, Nietzsche probably had heard of Kierkegaard, though not read him. Kierkegaard mm -hmm. never read any Nietzsche. Kierkegaard could be just as polemic against the stodgy, 
cultural artifact of Christendom that was devoid of any actual real faith as Nietzsche. And I give some examples in the book, but Nietzsche remains a believer. Nietzsche believe. I mean, Kierkegaard remains a believer. He he believes that 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 within the dry husk of Christendom there is the actual kernel of a vibrant Christian faith, and it's possible to mm-hmm. live according to that faith. Of course, you know you read the book. I also work in a lot of Dostoevsky, who is a yeah. primary source of uh, theological insight in my life. And he's another, and these are all from about the same period of time. And Dostoevsky is one who went through his own, well, you know, long before Derrida or <laughs> celebrity Christians losing their faith and putting it out on Twitter. Uh, Dostoevsky was one who raised an Orthodox Christian, went away from the faith, became one that flirted with various forms of nihilism and certainly atheism, but then had a restoration of faith. And when his faith is restored, it is almost unassailable. And he sets it forth in such brilliant ways in novels like The Idiot, uh, Crime and Punishment, Demons, and especially, especially The Brothers Karamazov. And it's Dostoevsky that says, it is not as a child that I believe in Christ. My Hosanna has passed through an enormous furnace of doubt. And so that's why I, that's why I draw upon Kierkegaard. I draw upon uh, Dostoevsky, later in the book, others. But these are people that speak of faith out of their own crisis. They haven't ostrich with their head in the sand just ignoring the problem they faced the problem head on and found out that there was a way to continue to believe in christ so if i hear you right it's like you said you're not saying it's stick your head in the sand ignore all the issues with christianity but you're also not saying we need to take a sledgehammer to it all and just destroy it and what you seem to be saying is there's a small kernel or Maybe that was Kierkegaard. Whoever was saying that, there's a, there's a kernel of truth that we need to value and redeem, perhaps. Um, but I, I think if I'm hearing you right, the, the ways that 21st century Christianity, or maybe not 21st century Christianity, but 21st century persons have been going about it, is perhaps the wrong way. Yes? Yeah. Uh, the, one of the reasons I don't like the term deconstruction is it's mm-hmm. too easily to misconstrue that into destruction. Yeah. Uh, so imagine that someone finds a, a a lost icon, maybe in some Russian monastery, and it had been lost for 700 years, and it's priceless, it's valuable, it has the image of Christ, but, you know... Through the centuries, there's been a patina of soot and grime and incense smoke. They've covered the icon so that the image of Christ is almost completely obscured. Well, you don't throw it away. You say, okay, this is valuable. Let's restore the image. Now, when they bring in the restoration artist to recover the image there, I promise you that in her tools that she uses to restore this image, you won't find dynamite 
sledgehammer. <laughs> it's going to be, you know, brushes and mild solvents. And, and she's going to work with it very carefully because it's something precious. I, I, I mean, shouldn't we regard Christian faith as something precious? And yes, we can arrive at a moment where for various reasons, a critical rethinking of the faith is absolutely necessary. But let's approach it with respect. Let's, let's understand we're dealing with something priceless here. We don't go about, you know, restoring this, this we could say it this way, this, this precious cathedral, the way we would demolish a parking garage. Yeah. You know, in the course of writing this book, I, start, I, I had the inspiration to write the book while walking on Camino de Santiago in 2019, but didn't oh, really yeah. start on it until 2020. I'd already given it the title, When Everything's on Fire, and then it fire. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I had the experience of... Uh, I work into the book of, of seeing... Uh, well, it was it was during Holy Week, of I guess that was twenty was that twenty nineteen or twenty twenty. I you know, COVID has 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 messed with the <laughs> dates. I can't right. remember. Right. It it's kind of messed with things, but yeah. uh, in Holy Week of I guess it was twenty nineteen. Um, I I don't I know it was April fifteenth and it was Monday of Holy Week. Uh, Notre Dame, right, know, was on fire. And I've been to Paris so many times, and I love Notre Dame. I've been there so many times. And I just, I watched that news coverage with just broken heart and a tear in my eye. And, but as I watched it, you know, modern-day Parisians walking past Notre Dame day after day with shoulder-shrugging indifference could really be a perfect metaphor for what we mean by a secular age. And yet, it seems as though when Parisians suddenly realize, oh, this could be lost. I mean, it could be no more. They weren't gleeful. They weren't shouting, you know, burn, baby, burn, or hashtag empty the pews. No, they were weeping. Some were praying, but all were realizing we're in danger of, of losing something that is irreplaceable and very precious. I don't know how that isn't such a powerful metaphor. That we, yes, we understand that the church has a whole history of failing to live up by calling to emulate Christ. We know that. I know that. I acknowledge that. And I don't want to be cavalier about that. I want to say, okay, so we must continually repent, own our sins, and, and ask for the mercy of God and try to, you know, set things right. But do we really think that the world is better off? without that which brings the message of Jesus from generation to generation? Is the world better off without the Sermon on the Mount? Is the world better off without Jesus saying, love your enemies? Is the world better off without the stories of a Jesus who forgives sinners and heals the sick and sets the captives free? I don't think so. And I say, I, So I think it's very easy to be critical as long as in the back of our mind we kind of hold the idea, well, it still will be there if I ever actually need to turn to it. But on that terrible day in Paris that turned into that terrible night, it looked like it was going to be lost. And I read quite a bit on this, and it it nearly was. 
it's reported that it came within about 20 minutes because if those bell towers had collapsed, it mm-hmm. would everything would have been lost. And to save the bell towers, I've been up in those bell towers. I mean, it's, this is medieval, narrow, spiral staircases. I can't imagine taking fire hoses up that as a drill, let alone when the thing is actually on fire. Right. And a particular fire company tasked with this said, no, we can't do it. It's too dangerous. And that's when another fire company volunteered. They said, yes, it's dangerous. We believe it's worth trying to save. And they hauled those hoses up there and saved Notre Dame. And let's say it this way. Let's quit saying it in Latin or in French. Let's say it in English. Our Lady. Hmm. Our Lady, the church. And they saved Our Lady. And And... To be honest, Lauren, that's really what I'm trying to do at this point in my life. I just want to be a part of that company that says, I know it's dangerous, I know it's difficult, but give me one of those fire hoses. And I'm willing to risk it to try to save Our Lady because I think I think her presence in the world makes the world a better place despite the sins of Our Lady because she's the one tasked with carrying the good news of Jesus. You know, Brian, I think this is why I love the book so much because I'm a person who would, like you, say, I understand the background and the baggage and the risks, but I believe that the church is worth saving. The question I have is, I think, a question that I think I see kind of in the same places that you see it on Twitter with the hashtags and whatnot, is people would differentiate between, yes, Christianity might be worth saving and God's going to continue to do God's work in the world, but the church itself needs to be done with as we know it. Would you differentiate, and if if not, what would you say to those who, who think? Well, I'm all for semper reforma, always reforming. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's and, and keep this in mind. Keep this in mind. There has never been a golden age of the church. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I challenge you to find it. Yeah. Tell me when the church was ever, you know, without spot or. When the church was ever just fully glorious. Tell me, when was our golden age? It's never been there. The church, because of the limitation with which God has to work. His building material is you and me. (laughs) And we're sinners. And we bring our sin into the project. Now, I understand, I don't want to just be dismissive of this. Uh, There's all kinds of abuses and things that become such a stark departure from anything that is representative of Christ, that, that it must just be deplored. Uh, nevertheless, yes, always reforming, but we cannot just say we will mean we'll keep Jesus without the church. Yeah. It won't happen. The church is how we pass the faith on from generation to generation. Without the church, eventually Jesus disappears. And it's less known than his... Jewish contemporary in, in Alexandria, a file of Alexandria. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, it is this, however you imagine it being lived out, that people collectively gather together, whether it's in a cathedral or a kitchen, mm-hmm. they gather together because they have encountered Christ and they know something of his love and forgiveness and they want to seek together to live out a life that's informed by Christ. 
So I, I give people a whole lot of room to reimagine church and how you define it, and it doesn't matter if it's in a storefront or a, or a living room or a cathedral. There's all kinds of different ways that that can be practiced. But the idea that it's not something we do by ourselves, but it's something we do together, I think that is the necessary aspect. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. I think, you know, with with COVID, there's kind of been this even perhaps even more of a personalization of the faith and a, a, what am I trying to say, a lessening of the importance of the gathered community, which... uh, I understand the challenges of COVID and um, the implications of putting yourself at risk in harm's way of, of gathering in person. But I frankly value the ecclesia, which, if if I understand the root of the word correctly, it's it's a gathered community purposely coming together uh, to worship and follow Jesus. Right? Yes. Yeah. I I just look. The lived Christian life is far more than the Sunday gathering, mm-hmm. but it's not less than that. Hmm. Uh, that's at the now. Even even now, how we gather? Maybe we do gather online, you know. And I understand that, and and I think there's limitations there, but also there's some new opportunities there. And at times and places, it may be necessary for various reasons, not just COVID. Uh, but the but the idea that you can maintain Christian faith all by yourself. It just becomes then, it's not a lived Christian faith. It just becomes a a, a hobby, an interest, you know, like, like one would be interested in a particular, you know, history or, or hobby or endeavor that they quietly, you know, practice by themselves. It, it, that's not what Christ calls us to. Christ calls us to something that we actually live and we actually do it together. And and I, I guess I, I I get nervous about being too much the apologist for the church because people say, well, you, you know, you know, you're a pastor after all. We expect you to say that. Yeah, but maybe it's the other way around. Maybe it is because I'm so committed to it that I am a pastor. You know, I really do. Think I could have done other things with my life, and nobody put a gun to my head and made me be a pastor. It's because I actually believed in this that I began to live into it. And and uh, um, so. I, I just I don't think that you can effectively live the Christian life all by yourself, and so we gather together with others. So I, I think that's enough about that. <laughs> well, or, or I'll sound like I'm a scold, and I don't want to come across as that. Yeah. Well, I'll say this: I don't want to keep you any longer, um, but I will. Rec- I definitely want to recommend the the book is "When Everything's on Fire: Faith Forged from the Ashes." There's a lot more we could have talked about here. Um, about deconstruction and reconstruction and uh, some thoughts on the future of Christianity. Um, But for sake of time, let's take a break. We'll come back with some closing questions and wrap it up. All right, we're back with Brian Zand, and uh, thanks so much for your time. I'll give you some closing questions. You can take them as seriously or not as you'd like to, uh, but if you're Pope for a day, what do you want to do? What's that day like for you? Pope for a day? Wow. I needed more time to think about that. Pope for a day. Okay, here's here here's my decree. <laughs> Get ready for this. Uh preachers can preach from all the books of the Bible whenever they like, except for the book of Revelation. They must have a special license to be able to preach from the book of Revelation. <laughs> 
<laughs> that might be the best answer I've gotten here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'd be down with that. Down with that. Um, a theologian or historical Christian figure you'd want to meet or bring back to life. Oh, wow. Well, it depends on how far you go back, but um, I would like to... I would like to have known Fyodor Dostoevsky. Mm. I would like, I, you know, he, he, he lived a very troubled life. Life was hard for him. But he had such a gift for certain uh, mm -hmm. I would like to, you know, and since this is all fantasy, you know, either he speaks English or I speak Russian, how sure. it works. But yeah, I would love to have some time with him. And, or, or I got a better answer. I got it. Since, since it was to bring him back to life. Right. Here's what I do. We bring Dostoevsky back for two years so he can see the Brothers Karamazov was simply the first of two books. Mm -hmm. And it was setting up what was to be his masterpiece that he'd given the working title Life of a Great Sinner. This mm -hmm. is, if those of you that know the story, Aloysius is 19 years old in the book. He's a novice monk. Remember, Zosima then sends him. He does. He says, no, you're not going to live your life in the monastery. You're going to go out into the world. And he goes out into the world and loses his faith, but then recovers it. That was the general plot for life of a great sinner. I want to bring Dostoevsky back so that he can finish that. Because he, he finished, you know, Brothers Karamazov and then died <laughs> at age 60. I'd like to give him a few more years to give us that sequel. That's a good, that's a good one too. Um, what do you think history will remember from our current time and place? Well, it depends on what you mean by current time. I, I, I'll say this. I think it is the end of Christendom. It won't be the end of Christian faith. Jesus mm -hmm. is endlessly fascinating and people will find Jesus and we'll find Jesus together and faith will find a way. But I think we are coming to the absolute end of the idea that uh, Christianity can rule over culture and society. You know, this begins with Constantine. It's, it really ends pretty much immediately post-World War II in Western Europe. It's soldiered on in America, and the culture yeah. wars is in one sense an attempt to maintain Christendom, and it's not going to be successful. You can win a skirmish here or there, but no, that battle's going to be lost. And so I think people are going to look at this period of time and say, yeah, this is when Christendom finally exhausted itself. Yeah. You know, I think the irony of the, the culture war skirmishes you mentioned is that uh, the moral majority or whatever we want to name They've won the battles, but it's almost at the cost of greater losses in the war. Well, yeah, losing their war, if not losing their soul. Right, right. right because right. because then what happened with the culture wars is the apparatus of political power became too seductive. Yep. And, you know, 
it's the ring of power. One ring to rule them all. One ring to find them. One ring to bring them all in the darkness, bind them. And if you know, if you know anything about the Lord of the Rings, you know that no one was able to possess that ring without being corrupted by it. Yeah. And the, the entry into the culture wars was one uh, component of the church saying, "I can use the ring of power. I'll do good with it." And we see that nope, they get corrupted by it. Yeah, that's an important lesson. It's an important lesson. Um, let me ask you this last question, and perhaps if you want to maybe tease some of the ideas in your book here, because we didn't really even get a chance to touch on your ideas about the future of Christianity and, and second naivety and all that. Uh, but what do you hope for the future of Christianity? Well, I mean, it, it's exactly what I've been maybe setting up to allude to, and that is that the loss of Christendom is an inevitable, inevitable loss, and some people will feel it in a painful sense. But in the end, it's maybe just a clearing of the forest growth. And I, I, as I try to anticipate what the future looks like in Western society, the ch I would suspect that the church, and this is a very strong suspicion, that the church is much chastened, humbled, reduced. The church will have no choice but to live as a very definite counterculture minority. But that is, in fact, the very environment in which Christianity thrived in its first three centuries. Yeah. And so that's that's where I find hope, and that's what I look to. And I, I'll just touch on it real briefly, because I mentioned it in the book. It's prominent in the book. In 1971, German Catholic theologian Karl Rahner said, the Christian of the future will be a mystic, that is, someone who, who has experienced something, or there'll be nothing at all. Well, what Karl Rahner called the future in 1971, we call today. Yeah, we, we've that was that was half a century ago. We've at that moment, and by mystic, we just mean someone who seeks and at some level attains an experience within the mystery of God, which the Bible sets forth as entirely normative. And so, uh, Christianity of the future will not be sustained by just dogged allegiance to a tradition or clever intellectual apologetic arguments, it will be sustained by experience. And so I, I look for the church to be chastened, humble, no longer trying to control or dominate culture, but possessing an experience with God that other people over time find winsome and desirable and attractive, and they will want to seek it out. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Appreciate that. Uh, tell our listeners where they can connect with you and uh, find out more information. Yeah, I'm easy to locate because I have another Brian Zond, Z-A-H-N-D. I think I'm the only one out there. And if you Google me, you know you'll find. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm active there. A little bit, not much on Facebook, Instagram. Have a blog site, although the podcast killed the blog. So <laughs> who knows how many blogs will be. Uh, BrianZond.com. Uh, all my sermons are archived at our church website, wolc.com, or in church, or just on YouTube. Just go to YouTube, and you'll find them all. They're all there. If you go to YouTube and Google Brian's on, you'll also find people calling me a heretic, but I'm not, so <laughs> just try to ignore those people. <laughs> well, thanks, Brian. I think I mispronounced your name there before. Um, so, But thanks again for your time, and wish you God's peace as you, you continue on in your work. Thank you, Lauren. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. One more thing before you go. 
do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people about the podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is a production of Torn Curtain Arts and Resonate Media. Our episodes were mixed by Danny Burton, and the production support is provided by Paul Romaglevitt. Thanks, and go in peace. Peace.